Tonight we're going to look at verses 6 through 10 in James chapter 4. We embarked on this chapter last time, and this is actually a continuation. James chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. The Bible says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And let's pray. Father, once again, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you've given it to us in writing, and that thank you that you preserved it, you inspired it, and we can know for sure that we have the more sure word of prophecy. We have God's words before our eyes. We thank you that we can, we can read and study and be students of the word. You told us we should be, that we should study to show ourselves approved to you, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. Help us to do just that. Now, tonight, as we deal with this passage, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us, that you would give insight and wisdom and leadership in what's said, and that what, uh, we would have that open heart that we need to have to hear what you have to say to us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this, Nine Commands for New Testament Believers. You know, a lot of people say, well, the Ten Commandments, that's Old Testament. Well, yeah, there's a lot of commands in the New Testament. Amen. Uh, we're in a day and age where there's uh, too many churches preaching this idea that you're under grace, doesn't matter how you live. It does matter how you live. And there are many, many commands. I think there's 300, over 300 what they call divine imperatives in the New Testament. And that's, that's commands. Things we're supposed to, we're commanded by God that we ought to be doing. And uh, so James here has nine of them. We're going to see them tonight. Now, the text before us is a continuation of James' rebuke of worldliness among believers. We saw last time James gives four sins believers have to avoid. Lust, failure to pray, praying, um, uh, mispraying, or if, however you want to term it, praying amiss, he says, and friendship with the world. Now, in verses 6 through 10, James gives nine different commands for believers to obey. And as we look at this, understand that worldliness <coughs> is one of the greatest dangers to the church today. Seems like today there's a lack of desire by God's people to live godly lives, and lives that are separated from the world. But this obviously is not something new to our day and age because we're reading here how James had to deal with the same issue over 1,900 years ago. It's an ongoing issue shouldn't be, but it is. Now, let's look at these nine commands given to believers to combat worldliness among us. The first thing I want you to see in verse 6 is uh, God's supply, God's provision of grace. It says there, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Grace, as most of us are aware, is God's unmerited favor. 
people have said, God's grace is us getting what we don't deserve. Others have used the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. However you want to choose to define it, uh, God's grace is his showing favor to us even though we are undeserving. And James tells us there, not only does God give grace, but he giveth more grace. Uh, God has made provision for the believer's every need, and he's done so by his grace. If you remember over in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul begged the Lord three times to remove the thorn in his flesh, and God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for thee. And uh, God's grace abounds, God's grace is sufficient for our every need. God's grace is an inexhaustible uh, resource, if you will. Over in Romans 5.20, it says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God has enough grace to forgive any sin that we can commit. And he promises he will if we'll confess. And uh, God's grace, therefore, we see is God's unmerited favor. Then we also need to note that God's grace is conditional. Mm-mm-mm. God's grace is conditional. James goes on to say here, God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. You know that same statement is made in 1 Peter 5, 5. God resists the proud, but he gives, gives grace to the humble. Not every person receives God's grace, and it's not because he hasn't made it available. Hmm. God's grace is available to everyone, but uh, we, ha we have to meet the requirement. God's meeting our need is not an automatic thing. Here's an illustration. I, I was thinking about this. In order to receive God's gift of salvation, which is by grace, one has to humble himself and acknowledge his need as a lost, vile, wicked sinner who needs to be saved. So God's grace is given to us and shown to us in that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But, but there's, there's a requirement there for us to want that grace. It's not an automatic thing. In order for believers to experience God's provision, we need to humble ourselves before God. And that's what James says there. He says, uh, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Uh, the person who turns to God and away from the world and his sinful ways will receive all the grace from God and then some. Hmm. Amen. In order for believers to experience God's provision, he must humble himself before God. Somebody said this, if a person is proud, if he is stiff-necked, haughty, and rebellious against God, God will resist that person. Mm. We don't think about that much, do we? We think of God's grace, and we think how God has poured out his grace and how he wants to save everybody, and, and he's made provision for everybody, all the goodness of God. But understand, for the person who will not humble himself, God is against them. Isn't that what James says? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. God's grace and more grace. Well, 
And then notice, thirdly, pride thwarts God's desire. If you come to the Lord with your cup full, if, you're, if your cup is full of self, you cannot be filled with the divine grace that God wants to give you. But if you come empty of self, God then can, God's grace then can have, have something which he can make his grace flow into. See, so often we're too full of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Pride is set forth in the Bible as possibly the greatest of all sins. In Proverbs 16 and verse 5, it says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Listen, pride is, is one of the oldest sins and one of the most deadly sins. Pride's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. Hmm? The pride of life is what caused Adam and Eve to get kicked out of the garden. Hmm? They wanted to be as wise as God. They wanted to be as God. Hmm. Look where it got them. Look where it got us. Humility makes God's grace available. Humility, we understand, is the opposite of pride. I'll talk a little more about that later. Humility, humility is an awareness of our own insignificance and God's importance. As I said, I'll say more about it, but humility is when we lower ourselves and elevate him. So we see God's provision of grace. Then notice the second thing. In the next few verses, James gives God's program for humble walk. Here's how we can display humility and have a humble walk. The first thing in verse 7, we find a call for an act of allegiance. Verse 7, a call for an act of allegiance. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, that has a military connotation to it. In the military, you have to submit yourself to those who are over you. You have to learn to put your, your, yourself, your desires, what you want, down so that you can be what those over you want you to be. It's a military connotation here when James says, submit yourselves. The taking up of an allegiance to a great superior in order to engage in a fight under his banner. That's the definition of submitting yourselves. I'll say it again. It's the taking up of allegiance to a great superior in order to engage in a fight under his banner. And that's what we're supposed to do with God. We're supposed to submit ourselves under him. For the believer, submitting to God means to stand ready to await his commands and to carry out his will. That's how we submit ourselves to God. I'll say it again. We stand ready to await his commands and to carry out his will. And we think of the example Jesus set for us when he, he prayed so many times, not my will, but thy will be done. He says he didn't come to do his will, but the will of the Father that sent him. We're supposed to have a Christ-like spirit in that we submit to the will of our Heavenly Father. Submission for the believer means accepting God's will instead of imposing our will. Hmm. Whose will is ruling in your life? 
God's will or your will? Hmm? You know, if you're self-willed, you're a rebel. You're rebelling against God because God says we're not supposed to want our own will. We're supposed to submit ourselves to his will. And then notice, secondly, we're to submit to God, but then there's a call for active resistance. He says, uh, verse 6 or 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. And then he says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. As I looked at that statement and dealt with that statement, some things really came to light for me and things I hadn't really thought down these lines in what James says here. First of all, when we read that command, it asserts once more the reality of Satan. Hmm? It's God who says, resist the devil. People say, I don't believe in the devil. <laughs> well, you're probably full of him. Hmm? Because he is as real as anything else in this world. Now, he is not... Uh, empowered like God is. He, he is not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. Uh, he's a, a, a one individual that can't be everywhere at one time, all those kind of things. But he's also the arch enemy of believers. And so we read here, and be careful how you take what he says here. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist means to stand against Resist is not a word meaning to carry out an attack into the enemy's camp, but it means for one to take up a defensive posture. That kind of hit me a little bit because I really never had put that much thought into what he's saying. He's saying there, we don't need to chase after the devil. We don't need, need to go after him. He's already coming after us. But we need to take defensive positions against him. We're to resist him. Oh, I think there's far too many believers who play footsie with the devil. Hmm? They toy with sin. They toy with temptation. And it ends up biting them. Yeah. When he comes along with his suggestions, we need to resist him. When he throws the temptations our way, we're supposed to resist those temptations. I think of Joseph and how he was confronted with Potiphar's wife and how he resisted that temptation. And we need to understand we're supposed to do the same thing. The enemy's pressure is ceaseless and believers are under his constant attack. Listen, the more you try to serve the Lord, the more he attacks you. Now, I understand you say, well, you know, the devil's not going to deal with me personally. He's, he's got bigger and better things to do, and that's true. But he has a minion of, we call them demons, uh, the evil angels and workers of iniquity, that he has a great army that does his bidding for him. So while he, he personally may not be dealing with you, uh, indirectly he is. And we're supposed to resist him. The enemy's pressure is ceaseless. Believers are under constant attacks. Somebody said this, 
No act of consecration to God can remove us from the conflict. Hmm. Okay, let me say it another way. No matter how serious we get about our dedication to God, we're still going to be in the battle. He's not going to leave us alone. The opposite is true. The more consecrated we become, the more we face opposition. Why? Because we're a threat to him. You know, for the believer who's doing nothing for the Lord and just kind of living a, a worldly type of life, uh, the devil don't have to fight much with him. But you find some, uh, some old boy or some old gal who's going out and trying to witness and bring people to Christ and do the work of the Lord and be faithful in their devotional time with the Lord and walking with the Lord, boy, the enemy's going to be right on them. Hmm? Now, I don't want to discourage you from trying to live for the Lord, but that's a fact. And the more you try to live for him, the more you'll realize it. Quote goes on, it says, The contrary, uh, on the contrary, is the act of decisive enlistment as his underlings, which brings us into the line of fire and calls the devil's attention to us as objects of attack. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, the problem is too many believers, instead of resisting, they yield and uh, allow him to have victories in their lives. You know, the devil don't have to attack the unsaved. Sometimes we think, you know, well, he's, he's attacking out there and getting those people. No, he's already got them. That's not his battle. His battle's here. His, his fight is with those who are trying to do the work of the Lord. And we need to understand that. We are his primary target. If you're a believer, you might as well just understand you've got a big bullseye on your back. Hmm? He's after you. Uh, Peter warns us about uh, the, the devil that walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he was writing to believers. Then in verse 8, we find second thing there. He says, draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. So there's a call for a deliberately cultivated fellowship with the Lord. We're to resist the devil, and we're to draw nigh to God, and both of those are conscious, active efforts. Let me say it another way. It don't just happen. It's a decision we have to make and a, a plan and purpose we have to follow. Fellowship with God and its subsequent blessing of his fellowship with us does not just happen. We cannot drift into it any more than we can drift into holiness. Okay, that's just another way of saying it just don't happen. You've got to make a decision. I'm going to draw nigh to God. And can I tell you this? When you, when you make that decision, you will face opposition. Mm -hmm. I remember praying ardently for quite some time, Lord, I want to know you better. I want to be closer to you. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O Lord. And boy, the opposition came. Mm-mm-mm. If you want to just be a pew-sitting Christian who does nothing for the Lord and, and live, lives a worldly life, he's going to leave you alone. But boy, you make a decision, a conscious decision, that you're going to, you're going to 
resist the devil and draw nigh to God, you're, you're asking for it. You say, well, that's all negative. I'm, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Hmm? It's just a fact of life. Drawing nigh to God is the first step in resisting the devil. Look at the verse again. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Uh, the verse before, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, a lot of times people, you know, they take that resist the devil, and he'll flee from you out of context. And I like that, that idea that if we resist him, he will flee. But it comes uh, along with us drawing nigh to God. Hmm? Let's say it this way. The closer you get to God, the more the devil is resisted. Hmm? Okay, let's picture him as darkness and God as light. The closer we get to light, the less power the darkness has over us. That's why we need to draw nigh to God. The first element in the conflict in, is this central battle to live near God. The battle for regularity and discipline in Bible reading, prayer, public and private worship, and cultivating every appointed avenue whereby we can draw near to him is mandatory. Maybe you didn't get that. In essence, that's how we're, we're to draw nigh to God. We're to be regular. We're to be consistent in our, in our Bible reading, in our prayer closet, and, and in our public and private worship and cultivating, cultivating every appointed avenue whereby we can draw near to him. That's our responsibility. How many of you want to be near to God? Okay, you got to work at it. God says, if you'll draw nigh to me, I'll draw nigh to you. You got to want it. Listen, God is not some bully that pushes himself on people. You know, in soul winning, I often uh, remind people, God won't make you get saved. He gives you opportunities. He's, somebody has said, God is a gentleman. He doesn't push himself on people. And that's fact. But God is also a God who offers fellowship to those who want it. So he says, draw nigh to me, and I'll draw nigh to you. The father desires his children to seek to be near him. God desires a close relationship with every believer, and he promises it to anyone who will seek it. You know, sometimes people think that God has favorites because some people have drawn nigh to him, and they're experiencing the blessings of God, and and somehow they think, well, God's showing them favoritism. No, it's just that they've drawn nigh to him, and you haven't. Hmm? Far too many believers are content to be a child of God, but not to be in close fellowship with him. There's, there, there's the rub right there. Too many Christians are content to be a child of God and on their way to heaven and not have a close personal relationship with the Lord. We call that carnal Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, First Corinthians is all about that kind of Christianity. Living for the flesh, not living for the Lord. 
God's program for a humble, humble walk. Number one, there's a call to active allegiance. We've got to submit ourselves. Number two, to active resistance. We've got to resist the devil. Number three, we've got to deliberately cultivate fellowship with the Lord. Number four, a call to thorough purification of our lives. Uh, verse 8, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Boy, those are pretty strong words. James didn't beat around the bush. He says, cleanse your hands. A cleansing of the hands there is called for. Cleanse is a Greek word uh, from which we get our word catharsis. And the idea is to cleanse something, to purify something. And James is telling us we need to cleanse and purify our lives. There's too much sin in them. We need to clean up the outer works of our hands. When he says uh, cleanse your hands, he's talking about outwardly on what people see. This speaks of our outward acts of wrongdoing. And then he calls for a purifying of the heart. Uh, somebody said this, it was so, so true. Clean hands do not mean a holy life. Mm, think about it. You know, a person can look good outwardly on the surface, but it doesn't really mean they have a godly life. That's why James calls, therefore, not only cleanse your hands, he says, but purify your heart. He calls for a consecration of the heart as well as the hands. A person can keep their hands clean, outward actions, but fail to be pure in heart. It's not enough to confess the sins of the hands if there's no willingness to forsake them. It's not enough just to admit to the Lord, yes, what I'm doing is wrong. There needs to be a willingness to not do whatever you're doing. Hmm? If we confess our sin, and that word confess means to agree with God about our sin, and, and if we have that kind of an attitude towards it, then we get forgiveness. But if we just go to the Lord and tell him what we did, well, my soul, he already knew what you did. That's not confession. We don't need to make a list to him of, of all of our transgressions. He already knows everyone. I got away from that when I, when I came out of Catholicism, hmm? where you had to go to confession and list all your sins to the priest that, that you could remember that you did. By the way, I don't think anybody's really honest in that. That's just my opinion. I mean, well, anyway. The agent, he says there, uh, how he words it is interesting. He says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Listen, this is a work we're supposed to do, not that gets done for us. We have to actively do this. Cleanse our hands and cleanse our hearts of the sin that's in them. We are the agent that's responsible. Somebody said, it's not the work of the Holy Spirit, it's the work of the energized believer. We must take the initiative and do the necessary work. And then in verse 9, we find this. There's a call to earnest repentance. He says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. He says, be afflicted. That's, that's when we're afflicted when we realize our own misery. When we recognize sin is a tremendous burden and the misery it brings. Be afflicted. Listen, a, a believer ought not to be a friend of sin. Sin in our life should cause us to grieve. Repentance involves a sense of sin, the sorrow for sin, and the turning from sin. He says there, be afflicted. And then he says we ought to mourn. That means to lament with a grief that cannot be hid. Our sin should grieve us deeply. And repentance should manifest both outward and inward grief. I thought about in the Old Testament when somebody was grieving, they would, they would be in sackcloth and ashes. Hmm? That would demonstrate outwardly that there was grieving inwardly. Now, we don't have to sit in sackcloth and ashes. But the outward of, of our grieving over our sin is the, the fact that we change it. We stop it. And we understand the results of it. We ought to mourn. Repentance should manifest both outward and inward grief. And then we need to weep, he says. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. And, and that's the outward manifestation of the sorrow that's within. When you weep, you're showing that down in your heart you're troubled. You're sorrowful. And too many believers are able to toy with sin and not have that kind of sorrow. Matter of fact, they kind of enjoy their sin. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Mm -hmm. And too many Christians enjoy that season. But you know, one day payday comes. Mm -hmm. Then it's not so wonderful. Need to weep. The believer now laughs at what he formerly scorned and scorns what he formerly laughed at when we're mourning like we should. The context here is sin in a believer's life. The present of it should bring sorrow. This does not mean that Christians are not to be full of joy or cease to laugh. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying when you have sin in your life, it ought to grieve you. And then we notice here's the call to self-humbling. It says in verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Well, here's another action for us to take. We need to humble ourselves. When we humble ourselves, we acknowledge our sinful ways, our failures, our undeservedness before God. We come recognizing who he is and who we are in reality. Hmm? I made myself a little note. Better to humble oneself than to have to be humbled by God. 
He can humble people. Remember Haman? He got humbled. By the way, uh, I was thinking about the situation in Washington with the House of Representatives, and uh, I started praying, Lord, turn their situation into a Haman situation. Let their gallows, let them hang on their own gallows. I think we might see it. Hmm? If the pressure continues, I think it might happen. And uh, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Believers can become puffed up by their accomplishments. You know, sometimes as believers, we have a tendency to get on our spiritual high horse where we look down on other people. Ought not to do that. We need to be humble. We need to understand we are what we are by the grace of God. We look at the unsaved. Sometimes we're very critical of them. We need to understand, but by the grace of God, that's us. And don't ever forget this. As believers, we are capable of every sin that the unsaved commit. Even though we're saved, we're still capable. If we give in to the flesh and we allow the devil to have his way in our heart and in our life, uh, who, who can tell how far we'll go? So don't get on your spiritual high horse, you know, well, well, I'm a Christian, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and blah, 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 blah. That sounds like the Pharisee. Remember the Pharisee and the publican? Hmm? How that Pharisee told the Lord all the wonderful things he was and did? Huh? And that poor, poor um, the Pharisee said all that, and that publican came, and all he could do was bow and beg for mercy. And that's how we ought to be, humbling ourselves, realizing anything we are, anything we accomplish, anything we can do, even in the spiritual realm, is all by the grace of God. It's not us. I was reading some commentaries. One man said he believed there's too much pride among Christians. Too much, here's the here's word he used, too much celebrity among believers. Hmm? people looking for the praise of men. Listen, we don't need the praise of men. We need the, 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 the blessings of God on our life. Somebody said, humility is God's elevator. I think that's a pretty good statement. Well, look what he says there in verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. You know, I was thinking when Jesus said, when you're invited to a meal, don't take the best seats. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, don't take the best seats. Take the worst seats. He said, it's better for you to be elevated by the host than to be in the best seats and have to leave them and be degraded. Hmm? So it's better for us to humble ourselves inside the Lord and let him elevate us. God uh, takes down one and raises up another, we're told. Let God be the one who promotes you, not you yourself. So we understand here, James in this passage, is he's, he's rebuking believers for the worldliness uh, in their lives. And worldliness in a believer's life is a great enemy. 
We need to learn to humble ourselves lest we need to be humbled by God. All we are as believers, all we do for the Lord is all by His grace. We have nothing to be puffed up about. We're just animated dirt balls. Steve Hayes. Hmm? In reality, uh, we're no different than the unsaved. The only difference is we're forgiven. Hmm? In that sense. We're, we're still vile, wicked sinners, but we're forgiven sinners. And we ought to be getting away from the vile and wicked and trying to live holy lives. Humble yourself before the Lord. You know, that's a hard thing to do. I think when we examine ourselves, we have two tendencies, one or the other. Either we make too much of ourselves, or we make too little of ourselves. Hmm? Making too much of ourselves, we're prideful. Making too little of ourselves, we forget that we are children of God. Amen. We forget that we still have the, the power to overcome sin and the enemy, etc. But we need to examine ourselves. And we need to make sure we're not puffed up. Somebody said, when you're on the mountain, uh, you look down on everything. And that's not the way Christians ought to be. We're on, we're on the same plane as the unsaved. As I said, the only difference is we're forgiven. We've seen the bumper stickers. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Well, that's true. We didn't get perfection when we got saved. Hmm? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we did? Wouldn't it be great if we never had to battle sin again? Wouldn't it be great if we never had to do, do, do battle with the forces of Satan and his imps? But it's not going to happen until we get the glory. So we need to understand that. By the way, he <clears throat> heaven is still a wonderful place. Mm-hmm preached about it this morning. Heaven's a wonderful place, and uh, thank the Lord we can know we're going there. But in the meantime, we have a battle to face. We have a work to do, and James is trying to help us here. James is very practical. The book of James, uh, not a lot of deep theology, practical application in our lives, and uh, this, this thing of worldliness, uh, we need to really deal with as he would want us to. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you for what you, you've given to us here out of the book of James. And we know worldly is a, worldliness is a great enemy of believers. Pride is also probably the greatest of our sins. And these are areas where, Lord, where we often fool ourselves. We often see ourselves as having separated from the world and and we see ourselves as humbling having humbled ourselves when in reality we haven't and i pray that you'd help each one of us to examine ourselves and see if if we're still living in in things of the world ways of the world attitudes of the world and then help us to 
humble ourselves like you want us to, to keep that humble spirit. Why we think of the Lord when he walked this earth and how humble he was, even though he's the King of kings and the Lord of glories. Help us to realize we need to humble ourselves and to be the servants, submitting ourselves to you, of being ready to do your work and your will. Help us in all this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mrs. Hunziker is going to play a song of invitation.